Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. You've jumped in the Houston Sports Talk time machine for Throwback Thursday, and since yesterday would have been the 73rd anniversary of Jackie Robinson's Major League debut, the day he broke baseball's color barrier, we'll pay tribute by looking back at a couple of players we've interviewed who've played with and actually knew the man himself, including a former Astro. You'll also hear a little bit from Jackie himself later in the show, but let's jump quickly in the time machine to find out which Astro played with the unforgettable number 42. Now let's take a look at the starting lineup here for Houston. Bob Astromani will be at third base. Astromani at third. So there you go. Original Astro Bob Aspermani is the answer to which Astro played with Jackie Robinson. Remember that Aspermani was picked in the Colt 45 expansion draft after being in the Dodgers organization for a few years, which of course plays a big part in what you're about to hear. Aspro was involved in so many firsts for the Astros. He was the first batter in the team's history. He had the first hit, the first Astro to hit a home run in the Astrodome. But let's go back in his life a little bit because this kid from Brooklyn in a wonderful twist of fate gets called up by the Dodgers. Keep in mind, he was a kid just 18 years old when that happened. So let's listen back to two separate conversations I had with Aspermani. So you're going to hear a change in locations in these two clips. So just a heads up if it sounds strange. I started by taking him back to his childhood and growing up in Brooklyn in the 1940s. Ebbets Field was how far away from you when you were growing up in Brooklyn? You could walk there, I would imagine, right? It was only about 10 minutes away. And actually, we, we idolized those players incredibly so. The impact they had on that environment the old Brooklyn Dodgers, Gil Hodges and Duke Snyder, Pee Reese, they created a tremendous atmosphere for a lot of young people. Jackie's, when he breaks the color barrier, and I, it was 46, 47, I guess, and, and you were maybe just a little kid, right, at that time? Oh, yes. I was only seven, eight years old. What kind of impact does it make when you're a little kid and, and you see that happen? Did, is it something that uh, sticks with you? Did, you? did you understand what was going on at all, have an idea? I think you, you, understanding the exact situation that was transpiring was a little difficult at that age. But as you grew a little older, get into the high school environment and watch this incredible player play this incredible game the way he did. And he was doing that on and off the field. I have a tremendous amount of respect for Jackie. And I've got an incredible story that he and I experienced. I never forget when... I signed a contract with the Brooklyn Dodgers. Walt Olson was the manager. He says, Bobby, I want you to go field some ground balls before the game with Jackie Robinson, Pee Wee Reese, and Gil Hodges. Well, that little body wouldn't move. <laughs> it just didn't move. And eventually when I got there, I had this kind of oversized glove. It's more like an outfielder's glove. So as we're catching and feeling the ground balls, Jackie says, Bobby, that's more of an outfielder's glove. You need an infielder's glove. Here, try my glove. So I used his glove, and we did very well there for quite a while before the game. And I said, oh, Jackie, thank you, thank you. He says, no, Bobby, you keep that glove. And I kept that glove for many, many years. Let me ask you also, you, you, you had the one at bat. It was a strikeout. Was, was that a situation where they brought you up to kind of give you a taste and because you had signed, or, or what was the situation behind bringing you up for just one game? Well, most important in that game was that the Dodgers were leading 17-3. to 3. So... 
So sacrificing that young kid to go ahead and swing the bat was fine. They just gave me a little feel. And it was so funny when I got back in the dugout, they were all kind of surrounding me, you know, about when I struck out. And they said, that's okay, Bobby. That's the way to start the career. <laughs> What was Jackie Robinson like? We, this past week, we celebrated once again the anniversary of him breaking the color barrier in baseball. What was he like when you met him? What do you remember about that besides him giving you the glove? Well, it wasn't just a glove. That's, that, I was incredibly impressed with Jackie on and off the field, and the way he handled himself was such a first-class way to handle it. And, you know, he did a special th- taking care of me at that young age, and he showed me a lot not only on the field but off the field. And that combination was so important. But Jackie was such a respected individual. And what he went through, he deserved. And we all said that many times, how much deserving of a credit he does. And he was one outstanding ball player. But I had a good relationship with him. A young kid, I've got great photos, great, great pictures of he and I to this day. Think about that. That was the man known as Aspro the Astro. And what a storyteller he is. And a quick bit of trivia. Bob Aspermani was the last Brooklyn Dodger to ever play in the major leagues when he retired in 1971. Okay, the man you'll hear from next was the last man ever to hit a home run in a Brooklyn Dodgers uniform. His name is Randy Jackson, but was best known by that cool nickname, Handsome Ransom Jackson. In 2019, we lost Randy Jackson at age 92, but a few years ago, he talked to us about playing with Jackie Robinson. Jackson played for three teams in the 1950s. The first team was the Cubs when he played third base next to Ernie Banks at shortstop. That's where we'll pick up my conversation with Handsome Ransom. Then after that, 56, you get traded to the Dodgers from the Cubs, but the third baseman in Brooklyn was this guy named Jackie Robinson. What was it like to go to Brooklyn knowing you're going to compete for Jackie for a position? I just finished two straight seasons. Well, three seasons, I guess, of 17, 20, and 21 home runs and two all-star games. Led the league probably and put out success. So I thought I, I was pretty much settled in the field. And a sports writer called me one night in December, and he says, uh, you've been traded. I said, where? I thought I was king in Chicago. And he said, no, you've been traded for three guys. I said, well, where? He said, well, guess. I said, don't do that to me. <laughs> and so I started from the bottom. I said, Pittsburgh, uh, Cincinnati. These were the teams that were always below the Cubs. He said, no, you've been traded to the Dodgers. I said, you have. You are out of your gourd. The Dodgers had just won the World Series. I had always, of course, I think every ball player wants to play in the All-Star Game and the World Series, and I knew that I'd never get a chance with Chicago. But getting uh, traded to a team that had a chance to go to the World Series was just phenomenal for me. And I didn't think about you know me uh, being in competition with Jackie. I didn't even know it was gonna, his last year. But I got over there, and, of course, all the guys were just great people. And Jackie was great, great guy. And, of course, the sports writers were always looking for something. He always called to me and said, well, what's going on with you and Jackie? I said, well, we're doing great, great, fine. The manager, Walter Alston, let me play half the time and Jackie play half the time. And then the day before the season started, Alston called me in. He says, I'm going to start Jackie. And I said, that's fine. He says, he's been here longer than you, and he's kind of an institution here. And I said, that's great, Coach, because uh, he deserves it. And so 
Jackie started and played about a month and a half. It didn't do too well. And then they put me in, and I was heading cleanup for the Brooklyn Dodgers. And I was sitting there on a cloud three or four or five or whatever. It's just hard to believe that these guys, Pee Wee Reese and Duke Steiner, were hitting in front of me. And then I was I was next up and in Hodges and then uh, Campanella and then Farilla. I mean, you, you, got, you got machines hitting up there with you and behind you and in front of you. And the guys wanted to win, too. Did you have any idea, I guess, at the time, the social significance he had? Did you have a feeling for that? What was it like to kind of be around that clubhouse while all this is going on? And, and, and Jackie is, and some of the other ballplayers like Campanella, they're guys that are, that are kind of setting the tone for the breakthrough of the color barrier. I assume you saw the movie 42. I did. That was back in, in uh, 47. So it was before my time. But uh, so w- what happened then was uh, was the first time I'd ever seen things like that. But by the time I got to play against Jackie in 50, it was my first year, first year I played some, most all of that had gone. I think in all my time up there playing with Jackie that I never saw a demonstration or somebody holler at him because uh, all that had died out, thank goodness. He was just a class act, too, just to be around, from what I understand. Oh, he was, he was great. Of course, he was, uh, I think he graduated from college. I'm not sure, but he was about a six or seven or eight letterman at college. So many things in sports, he could do anything. Then he came came into baseball, and I would say he was the greatest all-round player I've ever played against or seen. I mean, I've seen some good ones, but uh, all-round, Jackie had to be best. And as a person, to me. We got along fine. We talked a lot about various things when we were out there on third base. So to me, he was a great man. That was Handsome Ransom Jackson. If you listen to the full conversation in our archives, you'll hear him tell stories about playing football and baseball with Bobby Lane at Texas, rooming with Don Drysdale, playing with Ernie Banks, shaking hands with President Eisenhower, and being a part of Don Larson's World Series perfect game. What a life he has led. Next up is Larry Miggins. You might be asking, who's Larry Miggins? Well, he's a former Houston Buff in the late 40s and early 50s. The Buffs were the AA affiliate, remember, of the St. Louis Cardinals. He also had a couple of cups of coffee with the Cardinals, but his connection to Jackie Robinson goes back to 1946 when he was playing third base for the Jersey City Giants. It was also Jackie Robinson's very first game in the Dodgers organization with minor league affiliate Montreal. What happened that day, April 23rd, 1946? Tell that story. Well, we were going over the hitters in the clubhouse before the game, and you take the scorecard, and you go down the whole lineup, and it came to Robinson, and nobody knew Robinson. Never, They heard about him in the papers, but they never saw him play because he played with Kansas City Monarchs, I think, the year before. So the manager said, I want you back in practice, and he's a strong pull hitter. Miggins, I was playing third base. He said, Miggins, play him deep at third base, which I did. So the first time up, he had a ground ball and a shortstop, he threw him out. That's the last time I got him out. <laughs> Next time up, he hit a homer over the left field stands. So he was a strong pull hitter, and I'm playing him back. Third time up, he dropped one down, and he could bunt, and I could throw. And I ran in, grabbed the ball, threw to first base, and just like that, he was safe because he could run, too. Fourth time up, he had a single to right field, so I guess it was three for four. And the fifth time up, I'm still playing deep. I don't know why I did, but I did. 
I never thought he'd bunt again, but he did, and he beat it out. So he ends up getting four for five and leading the league and hitting. No matter how bad things might have gone with Jackie in his career, he could always look back to that opening day in Jersey City <laughs> when he got four for five. And he got big and him deep, and he had a great start in the game. God love him. I'm very proud that he, he did so well and, and uh, that I played a small part in making him a top header. <laughs> How cool is that? At the time I spoke to Miggins, he was 91. He's now 93 years old, still living right here in Houston. And if you go back to listen to that full interview in our archives, Miggins tells this almost unbelievable story about going to high school with Vin Scully and how that led to an amazing moment in their baseball careers. So far, we've heard from someone who's played with Jackie Robinson at 18 years old, someone who took over his position at third base and played with him in the World Series, and someone who played third base against him in his first game in the Dodgers organization. Next up is longtime Astros broadcaster Greg Lucas, who helped us remember Monty Irvin. For those who don't know, Irvin was one of baseball's racial trailblazers with Jackie Robinson. He also was a baseball Hall of Famer and a longtime Houston resident at the end of his life. So why wasn't Monty Irvin the man who broke baseball's color barrier? Well, Negro League legend Cool Papa Bell said, hey, Monty should have been baseball's first black ball player. And the man who signed Robinson, Dodgers GM Branch Rickey, met with Monty and really wanted to sign him. But there were two issues. Number one was a contract dispute with his Negro League team. Number two was Monty himself, who didn't really feel like he was in good enough shape physically and mentally after serving three years in the military during World War II. Basically, an American hero. Included in that was a deployment at the infamous Battle of the Bulge. I caught up with Greg Lucas right after Monty Irvin passed away. What do you remember about meeting Monty and, and what should people know about this guy? Well, he was a very very self-effacing and modest guy, and we, of course, just lost him just a few weeks ago here in Houston. But his mind was with him right up to the end. He he could tell you stories. He indicated the, the story you just told. Uh, he also had a little bit of an eye problem at the time, and he wasn't sure. But Branch Rickey, the Jackie Robinson story is well documented, but Jackie was not the only black player that Rickey was looking at. There was a shortstop who was not African-American, but he was black, and he was playing in Cuba that he was looking at very uh, closely. And there was a, uh, of course, Monty. And uh, under Ricky's master plan, he wanted to sign Monty and have him go to St. Paul, and Jackie would have been in Montreal. But uh, as it turned out, because of the reasons you mentioned, uh, he did not sign, and he went back and played in the Negro National League in 1946. Monty did, and he set all sorts of records. They had a great team. They won the championship, and he was the MVP, and I might have won the batting championship, too. And so he got signed the next year by the uh, the Giants. But he had a chance uh, to have uh, been in the minor leagues at the same time as Jackie, and which one would have made the major leagues would have been determined pretty much by how they did. But uh, it would have probably been Jackie, frankly, Monty said, because, he, as, he, as you pointed out, he was released from the Army. Both were in the Army, and he was released last. And uh, he had been actually in, in combat areas. And uh, he also had a little bit of an eye problem. So he wasn't really ready yet. And uh, he was concerned he wouldn't be ready yet. As it turned out, he might have been because he had such a great year in the Negro League. But it was an interesting sidelight that most people don't know. That was good friend of the show, Greg Lucas. The best way to finish this show is to hear from Jackie Robinson himself. I ran across an interview Jackie did with talk show host Dick Cavett 
1972, just before he passed away. Did you think things would come as far as they have? Or did you ever think it might not work? Well, there were times, certainly, when we thought it wouldn't work, but with the numbers of people that helped, yeah. we certainly thought that things would go as they have now, and even a lot further in terms of the front office and the managerial role and that kind of thing. But certainly baseball has got, got grown considerably, and we're quite proud of the role that we played in it. It's incredible now to think of a sport that big that was all... Uh all non-black. Yes. I mean, uh, so many uh, black stars in baseball now. Well, you uh, can't even count them today. I, it's amazing to me. I keep reading about certain ball players, and I, one day I look on television, and he's black. There's no longer a mention of Joe Blow, Negro ball player, this kind of thing, which is as it should be. I think they should be judged solely on their abilities out there, and the race shouldn't have anything to do with it. But they always used to, of course, they mentioned it for several years. It, it was like, an, an, and in this corner, and a credit to his race on radio, they always used to say that, and that way you knew. Right. Uh, no, no white man was ever a credit to his race on radio. It was always, <laughs> always black. Uh, there must have been tough times. Uh, well, obviously, there must have been tough times. But I often wonder how you got what temper you have to have under control at the time. So weren't things yelled at you? And Oh, there were a number of things, but uh, I worked for a great guy. I don't think anybody um, could have done the job had it not been for Mr. Ricky. He was constantly advising and guiding, and I had so much confidence in him, I would have jumped off the bridge if he told me to do it. That's, uh, that's how much I believed in him. And he was uh, a man that was sincere and dedicated and willing to lend that helping hand that's so needed today in terms of the problems that we face in everyday life. Brent Not enough Ricky. people are willing to do as Mr. Ricky did. What, did. what advice did he give you, though, about when you get out there and somebody's going to yell? Well, what was yelled at you? What kind of things well, <laughs> you name them in terms of race, and they were yelled. Everything it was quite vicious. I think it's Philadelphia Phillies with Ben Chapman was perhaps the most vicious of any of the people in terms of name-calling. The team members? Some members of the team, but there was a fellow by the name of Lee Hanley on that ball club that came down to first base when I was there and apologized for the Phillies. He just says, I just want you to know all of us don't feel that way, but it's been led by the manager, and many of the guys are doing it simply because of instructions, I would have to imagine. But it did give me a good feeling to know that in spite of what was coming out of the Philly dugout, one guy would come down and say he's awfully sorry. And, and actually what they did was to sort of solidify the Brooklyn ball club because... Mr. Ricky told me one of the things he said early was that when your ball club starts to take up for you in certain situations, our battle is most of the way won. And, mm -hmm. and I think that Philly incident started the Dodgers to kind of mold as a unit. Was that the worst, Philly? Yes, yeah. Philly was the worst. Uh, yeah. Ben Chapman was quite vicious. He wasn't only vicious as far as black people were concerned. I think he was anti-everything. Mm -hmm. so he, he, Where is he today? <laughs> God only knows. Yeah. Uh, did, um, but the team members, was this while you were on, when you came onto the field that they would yell things, or was it while the game was going on? I mean, could some of it have been just strategy to help? Well, they thought, I'm sure that a lot of it was thought to be strategy, but, mm -hmm. um, uh, it wasn't going to upset me. There was really too much to be done at that particular time in terms of breaking the baseball barrier to allow uh, name-calling to bother me. I keep remembering what my mother told me when I was a kid, although I've always been a guy that turned back. She said something about sticks and stones will break your bones, you know, and so not to be concerned about it. Well, I didn't at the time, uh, and fortunate for the advice that uh, I got from Mr. Ricky and the encouragement and the guidance I got from my wife at home, we were able to, to withstand most of the 
the kinds of situations that came up. We were prepared because of the numbers of people on our side. Yeah. I've heard that some of the uh, players since have felt guilty about not supporting you, that people have come up and said, I wish at the time I had uh, been well, a little braver or something. Well, I think Carl Erskine, who, in my opinion, probably had the most understanding of the whole situation, he was quite concerned. Uh, in Roger Kahn's book, Boys of the Summer, he, he points out that he would feel awfully guilty when we'd go into a restaurant in the South and all the white fellows would be able to go in and sit down and eat and the rest of us would have to sit in the bus and wait for a sandwich or something to be brought out to us. And he was guilty that he didn't participate more. But I, I, when I think about guys like that, I have to think about lending a helping hand. The Pee Wee Reese's, for instance, a Southerner. And I, I really believe that it was the Southerner on our ball club that, that made the Ricky experiment much more of a success than anything else because I, I'm sure that all of their lives had heard that there was a great deal of difference between blacks and whites. And when they started to associate with us and they found out that all of the things people said, that you use the same locker rooms, the same showers, the same facilities, something's going to happen, mm -hmm. they lost that fear after a short time and they became, I guess, as aggressive in terms of the success as anybody. Of course, I feel a little good, too, about Dick, because all that time was happening. Nothing was happening to me either, you know. So yeah. while they had their fears that things were going to happen to me, to them, yeah. I, I felt good because nothing was happening to me as well. So it made it kind of an even kind of a situation. But the whole situation in breaking the barrier was done simply because we had a purpose in mind to go out and win. Mm -hmm. and, and first it was Montreal. Then you moved into a town like Brooklyn. And it was just fantastic the way the fans responded and reacted. They were a great bunch of people, and I've always been a very appreciative for the support and guidance that we got from fans as well as from Mr. Ricky and the family. That was an extraordinarily frank conversation with Jackie Robinson and talk show legend Dick Cavett only nine months before Robinson passed away at age 53. This show is extra special to me because Jackie Robinson was one of my heroes. It's been a privilege to share the stories from these people who crossed paths with the man himself over the years. I hope you enjoyed our look back at Jackie Robinson as we celebrate Jackie Robinson Day on April 15th. Thank you for your courage, your conviction, and your goodness, Jackie Robinson. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Don't forget to follow Houston Sports Talk on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, the Google Podcast app, or the Stitcher app. You can support us by giving us a five-star review on iTunes or by telling your friends about us. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening.